This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. We are so privileged today to be speaking with Dr. Claire Cody, who is a psychiatrist and the director at the Village Clinic. Dr. Cody looks after infants, children and teens and consults for various hospitals around Melbourne. She has a passion for working holistically with young people and families to hear their stories so they can work together towards recovery. In this episode, Claire shares her thoughts on the role psychiatry has to play in the treatment of mental health in young people, as well as exploring how a multidisciplinary team can be established amongst private practitioners and her belief that this is truly the best way to support families. She also shares some beautiful anecdotes of her own intrusive thoughts. Let's get started. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. We always like to get started with finding out a little bit about our guests and what their story is and what got you into child and adolescent psychiatry. Sure. I'm glad it all worked out because I didn't really know what I was getting into at 17 when I decided leaving school to pursue this idea that I had in my head that I'd quite like to work with children and teenagers and I wanted it to be in kind of a counselling type area. Maybe I'll be a psychiatrist and just followed my nose. But through med school and then other placements and years in hospitals, it still remained what I wanted to do. It all sat really well with me when I started my psych training, loved the child placement. My advanced training in child psych was where I kind of learnt 90% of what I do and it worked out okay. So I've been (laughs) a child psychiatrist since 2011 and worked at various teams. I worked at the Monash Elm Service as a consultant first up and did a variety of different teams there. The most substantive two were probably the intensive outreach team. And we were looking after high-risk non-psychotic presentations and I really loved that work and the groups program as well, which was also fabulous, and some work with the RAPS team, which was the early psychosis team. Which is where we know each other from. That's right. That's where I met (laughs) Sorry. Then after that, I went and started some private work as well. Since then, have with a colleague opened our own clinic, so work at the village in Newport and do general child and adolescent psychiatry there, some youth as well. I tend to not take people if they're over 18, but then I see them through for a little while. So I see them into their 20s. So I see a a variety of different presentations there. And I worked at Royal Children's for five years. And now I work at Sunshine Hospital in their brand new consultation liaison child department. That's a wealth of experience. Well, it feels like an entire lifetime, so I can, <laughs> I can imagine. But yeah. yeah, it sounds that way describing it, but still always learning as well and still always seeing myself as seeing all these areas I'd like to do things in in the future still. You've worked across both now private and public settings. And I know that in a lot of public mental health services, psychiatrists really built into the structure of care. So it's something that almost all young people, when they 
go through a public mental health service have access to, but I know that that's not the case in the private system. In the private system, what is the role of psychiatry? And of course, that'll overlap with public, but it's just, I guess I'm curious because it's an interesting question about when to refer to a psychiatrist and when is it value adding and and how to differentiate and decide what support a young person needs. Yeah, it's definitely different. In terms of my job satisfaction, I love that they're different. I love their differences because that helps keep things fresh across the week. But I think in terms of service delivery, the public system tries really hard not to be siloed and to try to be blending its services. Sometimes it succeeds that and sometimes it doesn't in trying to make sure that people have access across all areas and have different areas of their health and disability and psychosocial need covered. I think the private system is built in silos that it's actually incredibly hard to break out of. It is not designed not to be siloed. So even though I work within a group of colleagues and we talk and share thoughts at peer review meetings from time to time, essentially I work alone, not necessarily by choice, but by the way the Medicare system is structured in a lot of ways. The most intensively I see someone is fortnightly. That's not because I don't want to see them more. That's because I need to try to keep myself across a number of cases. There is nowhere near enough child and adolescent private psychiatrists about. We can't even close to meet need. And anytime I feel the pressure to try and meet a need, I know that I'm going to be letting the people who I've already taken on care to down by not being available to them for appointments. And once it gets out to you can't get in to see me for two months, I know that I need to close my books and say no to anyone else new coming in. So I do work alone and that means that I'm always looking for what does this person need, what is missing in their care. If they already have a great relationship with a psychologist, for example, that is actually quite often the case that I'm being referred people who either have already in the past seen psychologists and that hasn't worked out for them. That's one avenue and so they're looking to see what something different might offer. Or probably more frequently, they are actually already linked in with a psychologist, have a relationship with that person, and it's about how we might work together. And by work together, I probably mean more in parallel with liaison. So what I will be providing is I do an assessment over three sessions, usually one individual session, one parent session, and one with parent and child, both parents hopefully and child, as long as both parents are involved. And then from there, in that third session, I give some feedback around what I think might be best from there ongoingly. I might do fortnightly individual sessions if that's what's indicated, if there's someone else working with the family or even if there isn't, if that's what's indicated. I might do parent work. I might decide that we need to do something dyadic or some more family-based sessions. And I'll also be looking at the role medication may or may not play for that young person. I don't think people refer to child psychiatrists lightly. I don't think GPs do. I don't think parents take their kids to child psychiatrists lightly. I'm often not seeing first presentations of illness. I'm often seeing people where there is some chronicity and complexity and risk and seriousness. Medication is often a good question to be asking at the time that I am seeing them. So even though I don't really consider it often a first-line intervention, I'm often not at the stage of a first-line intervention when I'm assessing someone. It's in the mix about how that might be helpful as well how often I continue to see someone and at what stage I might hand over their care, that their questions to be answered over time. One of the beauties of private psychiatry is the long-term relationships though. And I like that someone can choose to say, I'm doing heaps better, but this helps me. And I'd like to continue to see you maybe just once every two months, but can we keep this going for a bit, which I can't, I don't have the luxury of in public work. 
It's so refreshing to hear that medication isn't often the first line of intervention. When we're talking about seeing a psychiatrist, you put it so aptly in terms of we've tried things for a little while and sometimes the young person might just need a little bit more of a leg up to help themselves get up over the wall, so to speak. Parents often are really, really nervous and young people too are nervous about medication and often have this conception that psychiatry means medication and that's it. And through the psychiatrists that we've been speaking to, including yourself, like it's just so nice to hear to have that demystified to go, actually, no, it's not it at all. You know, we consider the whole picture and then go from there. And if it's needed, then we talk about it. Otherwise, why have it if you don't need it? Absolutely. Not all the young people I see, even people I've been seeing for a long time, there are many who aren't on medication. Often the question has been asked. So I think it is an option and a discussion that will never be coercive. It will always be a conversation about what's best and what are the other options if we don't go down that line? Because I think parents are right to be wanting all the information, taking it seriously, wanting to consider it. I ask people never to make the decision on the day, but to go away, have a think and tell me their thoughts about it at our next session. What do you think the indicators are? I mean, it's obviously it's going to be really case dependent. I mean, I know that it's different in child and adolescent psychiatry relative to adult psychiatry, the role of medication. And for clinicians who might be working with a young person, what are the things that they can be thinking about around whether it might be time to refer a young person on for a consultation about medication? Well, I think when you're looking at any next step, you're going to be stopping and reformulating and relooking at your diagnosis. And if you go through that process and say, okay, it's not because what's going on is possibly not enough at the moment or possibly not working, the intervention we're doing. So is it because things are a little bit different to what I first saw and I really need to be thinking more about the role of the family in this situation or is it they need something more intensive than what we're doing so the dose of therapy isn't right, for example? Just stopping and saying what are we doing and why is it not sufficient But one of the reasons sometimes it's not sufficient is just because the situation is progressing, meaning that you're at second steps. You're at that next level intervention, which will be continued psychological work and the consideration of medication, usually not instead of a worsening condition or a non-resolving condition, maybe even just not progressing in a way that you'd call recovery. Perhaps they're just in a holding pattern. That can be a time. The other thing is that it's reasonable to kind of say, I'm wondering about the role of medication, but I'd also really like some other eyes on this case. I know that when I am, say, for example, looking at a second opinion via someone having an inpatient admission, one of the main things that I'm going to be seeking is I'm really stuck. Often that is when I admit is I'm stuck. This young person is not doing so well and I've looked at my formulation, my diagnosis and my treatment and I'm feeling stuck. And I'd love it if somebody else has a look and has some thoughts as to what they would do in this stuck situation. For psychologists, sometimes that is probably underlying their need when they refer as well. It's another set of eyes. So it doesn't have to be a medication question. It can just be another set of eyes. The reason why I will then medicate, that's a really evidence-based decision. So is there evidence for that young person who's presenting the way they're presenting that medication is the right thing and that it's warranted at that time and then what and at what dose. So when we're looking at depression and anxiety, 
that's got particular indications and particular things that I would start. Is this young person becoming psychotic? Then that's got a different line again. Could it be that the reason that this is not improving is this is a presentation of OCD? That would have another indication again. So really kind of being driven by the evidence when it comes to the medication diagnosis. But it's always a part of why are we stuck now and what's needed. What do you think about the idea of psychologists referring to a psychiatrist for a consultation or a second opinion? We all need that from our colleagues at times. And I guess I kind of do it in reverse too. I'm thinking through some of my (laughs) cases where perhaps I've been working with someone and I've been providing the psychological therapy and medication, for example. That wouldn't be uncommon. I have an interest in providing psychological work. So often I will myself do that. But then sometimes I'll think, I don't know if what I'm doing is effective or helpful. I think I might get a second opinion on this by involving a psychologist and referring to a psychologist for me to continue the medication side of things, but have a shift in what the psychological work is. So I do that for that second opinion, for that other person's involvement, for that fresh eyes, vice versa. It makes just as much sense for psychologists to refer to psychiatry for that reason too. It's hard working within the private system. Even when we're working within a beautiful supportive team with peers, we're often working alone. It's a hard thing to build relationships with other practitioners and to have the time for follow-up, for consultation. It's a hard and sometimes expensive process for families to pay for care team meetings and to bring everyone together. But we also know that it's important. I'm curious, Claire, about your thoughts about the value, about how to navigate that trickiness. Yeah, absolutely. It would be lovely if somehow the private system was funded and supported to be a little less siloed and that we weren't working so much in isolation. There are, as you mentioned, the care team item numbers now, which is wonderful. They also end up being utilised in a small number of people that I see, really. Some of my most complex clients, that's really helpful, but it's not always going to be helpful. And really hard also for us to find the time you know what the email chain looks like when you're trying to to get a care team together a private clinician (laughs) ugly there's nothing better than picking up a phone sometimes the phone tag game can be ridiculous but Mm -hmm. if you can leave each other your best windows and somehow make it work it is just amazing to have those informal conversations about people who you're caring for and I think that is the key word you actually care about the well-being of the young people that you're seeing Therefore, it's such a huge value add and enhancement to the care for somebody else who also cares about them to share their frustrations about looking after them sometimes because it's amazing how often they are shared as well. And that really helps you to continue your work and not kind of run away from it to work out what the best way forward really is. So yeah, picking up a phone is wonderful. I am better at that than I am at meaningful letters nowadays. I think sometimes Our letters have become (laughs) a bit of a tick box kind of scenario rather than anything meaningful. I used to write these lovely formulations and I'm I'm just not necessarily committing to people like that now. Post-pandemic, the letters have just become that tick box. Yeah, that's right. Nothing like being able to have a conversation. So I think it's really useful when you can find the time, even if it's not that often, even if it's just every now and again points in care. It's very enhancing. It's awesome if you actually are working alongside someone you know, a psychologist whose work you know, you've got a schema for it. You kind of know what they're doing a little bit. And so you can work pretty well together with other therapists doing (laughs) what you imagine that they would be doing if you kind of know what that looks like. 
that's the beauty of sometimes knowing people, I guess, from my public practice is that I'll know what work they might be doing. I must confess, earlier in my career, I used to get really anxious about picking up the phone to call a psychiatrist. I used to get so scared about the evaluation of my work. And it was hard. It was something I had to really work through and build confidence around and see it as a care team meeting, as a collaborative exercise. It was challenging, but it's something that you kind of got to push through because it is valuable. And I think you're right when you talk about how at the end of the day, it's a way of caring for your client. Yeah. Child and adolescent psychiatrists that I know tend to be a fairly friendly, amiable bunch. So it's not too scary, I hope. But <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem is that medicine's a bit like the military. And so there's all these ranks. And, <laughs> and so that builds in this kind of idea of who is approachable under what formal lines and who isn't. <laughs> That doesn't make us that approachable. But honestly, we massively benefit by talking about our patients. The time constraints can be such that you might get someone on the end of the phone who says, I've got five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what they literally do. But apart from that, we will benefit too. It's funny you say that about medicine. I've got a friend who works in a science lab. I won't mention the hospital. (laughs) She gets in trouble. And they've always got surgeons coming in and out of the lab. And I get amongst surgeons even. And it's like, did you see a bunch of nervous students all the time going, how do I ask this question? Am I going to get my head bitten off? Like what's going to happen here? And unfortunately with surgeons, the answer is probably yes. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But even amongst the type of surgeons, like there's this hierarchy of which surgeon is more approachable than another and all the rest of it it can be scary (laughs) I guess well people start to reflect the work that they do so I guess surgeons get god complexes about (laughs) we put people to sleep we decide whether Mm -hmm. they live or die (laughs) (laughs) if child psychiatrists are reflecting the work they do then they want to be systems driven and (laughs) Yeah, they want to be reflective and they want to collaborate and they're gentle and they care about engagement and are hopefully empathic. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) yes, absolutely. Claire, how does a family choose between seeing a paediatrician and a psychiatrist for mental health support? Yeah, it's a good question. And like lots of other things, like how do they choose between a psychologist and a psychiatrist or a mental health social worker and a psychologist and all the different disciplines that have a lot of overlap. There is, again, a lot of overlap between peds who are developmental and interested in mental health and child psychiatry. Largely a big difference is that a paediatrician cares about the social and emotional well-being of the child and can treat their biological needs and gets to know a family, becomes someone who can formulate about that family, but doesn't necessarily have specialised skills in a psychological understanding of what they're seeing. So if the need is neurodevelopmental in a system that is not needing further formulation around what is going on for that child or further treatment, but what is really needed is guiding through systems of NDIS and potentially medication, then a paediatrician is going to be an excellent choice. They usually do shorter appointments. They're not usually conducting therapy. And this is something I get a lot from paediatricians who then refer on to me. They don't feel like they are specialised in psychiatric medication. That is what they want from child psychiatrists. I've done this with medication and now I feel like I need somebody else to take this on. It's getting too much. I'm feeling a bit out of my depth. I don't know what the third line is. I don't know what to do beyond that dose. 
And I think that's reasonable. My appointments are an hour. Not everybody's are. Well, they're 50 minutes. Not everybody's are in child psychiatry. Some people run half hour or shorter, but paediatricians will generally run on the 15 minute or half hour. So you're doing a different intervention. And their specialisation is the growth and development of the child and their biological well-being. So if that's what you need, that's where you go. But there's often a lot more in child psychiatry in the psychological realm that paediatricians don't feel like they're trained to do or specialists in. Could there be a need for both at the same time? I would say particularly with ASD or ADHD diagnoses. Another one would be eating disorders. I've got a lot of kids where we share cases and have totally different banners and we need a shared understanding of the child and the system, but we do different work and we need to collaborate as well. So in eating disorders, the collaboration need couldn't be stronger (laughs) than any other diagnosis than in eating disorders, I think. So I'll talk to those peds a lot. But sometimes if I've got someone who's got diagnoses of, say, ADHD and ASD that have been made and they've been seeing a paediatrician and then medication questions come up or the system is getting more complex, they'd like my input, then they'll continue to have their ped as well. But I might take over the medication or I might not. That's a decision that will happen at the time. I think that's really helpful in helping to differentiate between when to have both involved, when to choose a psychiatrist, when to choose a paediatrician. But really, I think what we're learning through our discussion together today is collaboration is so important, irrespective of the presentation and who you're working with. In my public work where I'm training registrars, I talk to them about what is it that we are specialists in as psychiatrists. Perception as medication, I don't think that's really the answer though. A tool we have. What I hope a psychiatrist can offer a case is that a specialist assessment and formulation of why this particular presentation is happening in this particular way, diagnostic certainty when it's difficult. We have to be able to draw a line. That's part of what we're meant to be able to do is delineate and draw a line where it's difficult to do so. So sometimes it's putting those lines in the sand around a formulation to turn it into a diagnostic formulation. And then that driving evidence-based treatments, whatever they might be, a lot of which there are people far more specialised than child psychiatrists in. So that's when you parcel out again or work collaboratively with. The other thing I hope is in there is that child psychiatrists offer an understanding of the system around a child and can hold that broad understanding over time of how all the pieces of what's going on for this young person fit together and who's doing what and what those relationships, how they might be needing to change over time within the care team, for example, or just providing a bit of a longitudinal approach to. Which is so valuable because when you're in the trenches doing the work, it's so easy to lose it. It's so easy to disconnect or to go from session to session. You've got your sort of working formulation, but to lose touch and connection with that larger story. Especially if you are working hard in a fairly intensive way with one person within a system. Either you're doing the parent work or you're doing individual work. And yeah, so maybe a bit of a telescope out view is what I hope child psychiatry can give to. I love that idea. Yeah, it's a great Mm. way of looking at it. Thank you. Um, We've got our wrap up questions, which we ask all of our guests. Nothing scary, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) I think this part makes our guests feel the most nervous. (laughs) Sounds ominous. Yeah. What is something you now know that you wish you had known earlier in your career? I was thinking about this recently, so I can tell you straight up, Yeah, it's that it's okay not to know. 
Oh, I love that. It's so uncomfortable not to know, though. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) It's okay not to know. I have realised how much it requires experience to be able to say, maybe there's a little bit of ego in this too, but honestly, if at this stage I really don't know, then that's okay. There's a lot of things I do know, and if I don't know that, then that's okay not to know it. (laughs) It might be that it needs to be pondered that it's not for the knowing right now or that it's going to need a discussion and some supervision to further sort that out or don't fudge it, just don't know it. Yeah, <laughs> just don't know it. Be curious about it. Yes, just I love that. Just don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> Give yourself permission to not know. I love that. Yeah, and to tell parents sometimes that you don't know. How much more vulnerable could you be than sitting there and your little one's mental health isn't good? I keep thinking about what serious situation it is for these parents to be sitting in front of me asking for the help that they are. They desperately want you to know everything, but it's not okay to make out that I know where something is going or how something's going to pan out if I don't, or that I know why something is happening if I don't. I just owe them honesty. Totally. Clients appreciate that that transparency, because that's what we're asking from them as well. And I think if we're modeling that, then it kind of brings us on an even playing field in a sense of relatability and humanness, doesn't it? In terms of sharing that space together. That's often what we're using as our healing modalities is the relatability and the humanness. So it's very important. It sure is. From a parent's perspective, I think it's very frightening for them to feel like they don't know that their own child that they've raised that they don't know and that they don't have the answers as well. And I think to be able to share in that experience and say, this is hard to know, this is hard to understand, but we can think it through together would actually be incredibly validating. Yeah, sometimes sitting with uncertainty and being a bit of a guide through that is very important. Yes, absolutely. Holding uncertainty, I think, in the work that we do with a lot of our clients with OCD is definitely a space that we sit in quite a lot. Clients with OCD They really struggle with their intrusive thoughts, but we know that intrusive thoughts are a normal part of life. It's a part of being a human. So we ask all of our guests if they would happen to have an intrusive thought that they'd be willing to share. (laughs) Yeah. I actually give an example to my patients. I'm going to share two. (laughs) Yeah, do it. (laughs) The reason is that there's one that I think was really powerful and made me think about why it was coming up for me at that time and taught me something about treating OCD. So I'm going to share that one. But the reason I don't share that one with patients is a little too personal or distressing. Fair enough. So the one I share with patients is one that really happened, which was having stayed up very, very, very late one night making a birthday cake for someone and it was two tiered and I kept having this thought about whether the top tier was well connected to the bottom tier or not and then I'm putting candles on it and it's on a tray and I'm walking out and there's this crowd of people singing happy birthday and all I could think about was I am just going to totally slide it off this plate. (laughs) My arms are just going to tip and my elbows are going to tip forward and I'm just going to basically throw it on the ground. And it was really around the fact that I was a bit nervous in that situation about whether this was all going to hold together. So I thought I was actually going to sabotage it. (laughs) I didn't think I was. That's the point. That's what I tell them about it being ego dystonic. The one that I think is probably interesting that taught me something about ego dystonic thoughts was a bit similar, but I was actually holding a friend's newborn baby, a very loved friend and feeling a lot of love towards her brand new newborn baby. And had thoughts that I was going to let go. 
and it was so distressing. And so that's the one that taught me how distressing it is to know in your heart that there is not a chance that that's going to happen. And yet, why am I having that thought? And how awful it can be to have a thought that doesn't feel like your own. And kind of having visions of it happening in thinking about why that particular obsessional thought was happening for me at that time. I too was wanting to have a baby at that time. So I think it was really personal. Babies were a lot on my mind. It was really precious. There was lots of thoughts about the fragility of life and babies being not easy to come by on my mind. And so it brought about this ego dystonic thinking. I think if you've ever experienced anything that tells you something about what your patients might be going through, that's really powerful. I don't share that one because boundary-wise that's not appropriate, but it really helps in my work to have it in the back of my mind what that feels like. Yeah. I think Tori and I can very much relate to similar sorts of thoughts just through our own life experiences that really helps with the empathy in working with our clients who present with OCD and helps with that understanding. You can really see, especially for a first-time mum, having intrusive thoughts like that, not knowing what's going on can be so confronting and really, really distressing, or any parent for that matter, having those sorts of thoughts and being so vulnerable as well. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's not easy sharing some of these thoughts. So thank you. Yeah, they're very intimate, aren't they? They really are. Clara, I think we could listen to you talk all day. <laughs> oh, this has been exquisite. Thank it you. Really thank has. you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. We really enjoyed having you on the show. And as Tori said, we can absolutely listen to you talk all day. So hopefully we can have you back at some stage, maybe in the future. <laughs> oh, that would be lovely. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Claire. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative, To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break break the rules. rules.